And what we're going to look at tonight is our transformational revival. What that looks like. We've been studying what a revival looks like, what a transformational revival, uh, all of its aspects and what brings it. And tonight we're talking about our revival. Somebody say our revival. Because we're going to call it, we're going to claim it. To take, stake a claim in something is to say, that's mine. I, I own that. Does anybody own this in the Spirit? Can we get anybody to own a revival in the Spirit on this community in this area, right? This is our revival, and that's what we're calling God to do. Move in our revival. And tonight, the video clips I'm going to be playing for you are going to be important to you because they're ours. They're our history. It's something that belongs to us uniquely as a people, and we're in the stream of a revival that's flowing. I love this verse from uh, Habakkuk, which says this, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our town. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy, right? We're listening and we're seeing stories and watching video clips of revivals in other parts of the world and in different times and in different seasons. I've heard about your fame, Lord, but I, I stand in awe of what you did. How many of you remember some of those video clips, huh? Some of those amazing things of restoration, what God's done in cities. Well, I've heard about it. Well, I want you to repeat them here. Repeat them here in our time. Make them known now. That's our country that's in this land. So we have a heritage and a history of revivalism. It's unique to the United States. Many other countries have different spiritual giftings and awakenings. For the U.S., it's revivalism. That's our heritage. Say, that's my heritage. we got to claim that. Amen? And so how many of you know you, you heard at the beginning the, the horrible situation morally that the country was in? Not one young a convert to Christianity in 16 years in one church. That's pretty bad. And, and there were foul language um, committees and, and groups in colleges and in campuses. Uh, there was drunkenness everywhere. Women did not feel safe. Does this sound familiar to any other day? Right? But the great awakening came. The preaching came. And as they said, it hit cities, whole cities were coming to Christ and were running to hear the Word of God and moving. And how many of you know what happened after the first Great Awakening? There came, guess what? A second Great Awakening in the 1800s through Charles Finney. And uh, the, the ministry of God's Holy Spirit to pour out in this Midwest region of His Holy Spirit, again it changed. And we'll look later at some of the continuing historic revivals that happened throughout the United States. So again, we must stake our claim for a revival in this part of the country. Amen? It's our heritage. It's what we're made from. And so we want to look at that, and we want to see how these revivals are made. There are models to revival. And so on your handout, on the outline, you'll see transformation model charts. It's your second page there. Yeah, transformation model charts. It looks like this. And so there are different kinds of revival. I'll take any one I can get. How about you? <laughs> but they have a different shape and a different form. Let's look at the first one here. I've got it pointed out on the screen that uh, the first one is 
a sovereign action. Basically, that means an all-powerful God moves on a people group to repentance at a time and in a manner of His choosing. As the number of converted increases, their worldview begins to change the larger society. So that's just an outpouring that happened by God's will, by God's purpose in some location that God chose. And boom, it's a sovereign act of God, unpredictable in its timing. Now, The second is community discipleship. A kind of transformational revival is when efforts are made to strengthen and unify the church in that community so that it can impress the claims of Christ upon the community. Salvation is often initiatively driven by preaching and evangelizing and social change comes incrementally over years. Urban environments uh, with a pre-existing church are typical places and that church disciples its community and they receive and revive uh, under the discipleship of a church or a group of people. So that's a, a community discipleship revival. We've seen those in the past. Uh, here uh, we see this with particular, it's the same thing but with particular people groups. Let's say overseas somewhere around the world there may be a revival in a particular people group. God just moves in a tribe that hears the gospel and transforms that entire tribe and then it begins to transform the regions around them. But God chose a people group to minister to. The other is revivalism. That's what we're talking about for our history. A revival, it's kind of equated with professional evangelistic campaigns. This is kind of a Billy Graham type thing. Billy Graham's going to go into a city, bring his tent, right? Oral Roberts has a healing revival. It's because he loads up his uh, trucks and they bring a tent into a community. And night after night they have revival meetings. It's planned. It's a campaign. uh, And it hits the population. They receive it and they're moved by this kind of revivalism. There's a holistic development. This kind of revival is transformations, the product of a conscious and sustained effort to address the quality of life issues in a needy community. Personal and corporate conversion may follow, but as an ancillary emphasis. I'm thinking of uh, England and Britain in a time when uh, um, they, they moved to emancipate slavery and uh, uh, through the efforts of parliament Um, they were able to transform the culture because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it it happened uh, incrementally and kind of as leaven leavens the whole lump, it had an effect. Then there's transforming revival. And this is more uh, what we read a lot in the Bible and so forth. It's believers who humble themselves, they pray, they repent, they turn from their wicked ways so that the presence of God will descend and souls are converted. God heals dysfunctional systems, changes the justice in that land, changes the environment and the land itself, and gives wisdom for people to then develop a healthy society. Now this is what we saw in the Great uh, Awakening. In the Great Awakening of the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, we saw a people who prayed and sought God and fasted after Him because the condition of their community and their land. And God poured out a great revival. And what happens from being poured out a great revival, then 
they moved on that and acted upon that in a process. So flip your page over and let me show you this process of revival. It comes in three stages. The invitation and preparation stage. We need somebody who will pray. It can start with one. You've seen these video clips over the last number of weeks, and a lot of times it's some couple little old ladies in their home, right? Uh, it, it comes with a, a man who, who's so fervent he can't get off his knees, and he prays in his closet and prays, and things began to happen. There's an invitation. It's called the beachhead phase. Spiritually hungry believers call on the presence of God by humility and repentance and desperate prayer. An appetite for God's present. presence is the stimulus, it's the desire. And then what happens? Prayer groups begin to gather together. You saw the one in Ireland where the, they would, the preachers were coming home late at night after a prayer meeting and they began to notice that the house lights were on in many of the homes because people would rather pray than sleep. See, something happens where one, the seed, the hunger for that revival, people begin to pray and it begins to stir and other people begin to pray and the initiation starts to happen. It's inspired by man hungry for God. This is a predictable stage where you can see it mounting. The second is the awakening or the visitation of God. Do you remember God said, if you will, I will. If you will, Israel, right? If you will, repent, turn from your wicked ways, fast and pray. I will hear from heaven and I will pour out and I will forgive and I will heal your land. And so this is the breakthrough phrase. God's transcendent presence. We saw that video clip uh, of the Inuit people who in a youth prayer meeting, maybe 50 people in a room as they're praying and they're singing, uh, a fire begins to descend and a sound fills that room and, and it's louder than the singing and everybody is just wrecked by it. The great awakening of Jonathan Edwards. When you study this sermon, Edwards preached this same, preach, this same sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it at his church. Guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Stone cold. Half the people that had attended church basically in early America went because it was the prestigious thing to do. It was a social custom. Most of them were unconverted. He got a call. Uh, no, he didn't get a call. He got an invite uh, from a local pastor who couldn't preach at his church, so he rode his horse down to the other church and figured he'd preach that sermon there. When he preached that sermon in that church, and he literally read it in a monotone fashion, it says that the presence of God fell in that church so great that people began to be shaken out of their pews. They were holding on to the posts and pillars of the church. People were falling out in the Spirit. People were weeping and wailing at the fear of falling into the hands of a just God because they understood the weight of their own sin. 
revival. It's when God shows up, when God penetrates. The second great awakening with Charles Finney that said that, that God would pour out in city uh, districts so that people were riding their horses and carriages and when they would cross the city line, into the next city that had revival, they immediately were pressed on by the presence of God, would stop or get off their horse and fall on their knees and begin to cry out to the living God. His presence showed up. That's our heritage. Are you going to own this? That's our heritage. That's what's going on in America, and it's all-consuming. It's God-assisting man. It's unpredictable. You see, I, oh man, these church critics, I'm so sick of church critics, and, and, and they're preachers, and they're theologians, and they criticize when God moves mightily, and they say, well, that's just a little bit uh, unsophisticated for me. You know what I say to that? The same thing David said to his wife, if you think that that's something, you just wait and watch what I do next. So we criticize when people, when God pours out such a mighty outpouring that people are so filled with joy they can't stop laughing. When God pours out a conviction of sin, people can't get up off the ground. His weight pours on them. God moves and powerfully, and yet we would criticize and we would say, well, I don't like that, I don't think I'd go for that, and I won't go for this then fine, you're not going to go for any of it, so God won't go for you. But I want to move, and it's unpredictable what God will do. The last phase, and this typically is many times when revival's cut short of where God wants to go. You know, the, the Reformation was an awesome move of God, bringing the church from the brink of losing the concept of justification by faith. We almost lost the definition of salvation and the significance of Scripture. But Martin Luther, through, through the Reformation, brought it back. But how many of you know the Reformation stopped short of all that God had for it? Changed the world, but he wanted to do more. Many revivals stop short. They stay short of, they love that outpouring. They love the power of God. And what happens many times is they're trying to steward that outrageous outpouring of God just to keep that going that many times they burn out and they fail that move of God when God wants us to then move it further into transformation. This is when guided by wisdom the awakening in the church pours out into the communities. That's what we've been watching on these videos. The awakened people of God begin to speak into society for social and economical renewal. It begins to change the justice in a city. It begins to close down bars. It begins to drive out the drug addicts. The, the justice system, wherever there was corruption, gets exposed, and then it has to get right. This is when revival now goes into the land further. You saw that one video clip where the entire police force were the ones who were preaching the gospel. And so God moved, and it's, 
It's a steady diet of divine wisdom and an awakening into the social patterns and institutions. Now this you see after the first great awakening and second great awakening. Uh, after the second great awakening, you began to see the issues of concerns. After the second great uh, awakening came rights for women and the, the destruction of... We, we failed our Constitution and what we did with African Americans and slavery in the United States. That was a complete failure to what God said in the first great awakening, that all men are created equal. But we didn't follow through. But in the second great awakening, there was a greater push for that and the Emancipation Proclamation. And out of the second great awakening came child labor laws. Out of the second uh, uh, great awakening came uh, the concerns for, for animals. And out of that came the Salvation Army and care for people who were addicted and people who were poor. So all these things, it was called, um, uh, oh, I forgot, benevolence, but anyways, uh, <laughs> it was called disinterested benevolence. That was the term coined from the first and second great awakening, uh, Samuel Rutherford, who was, who was a, a, a student of uh, Jonathan Edwards, and the concept of disinterested benevolence. We know what benevolence means. Being good. What's this disinterested part? You'd pass by someone and not care? No. Disinterested benevolence means you're not going to give benevolence based on your interest of what you're going to get back or what it's going to cost you. It's a benevolence that whatever the cost, whatever the need, I will give. I will do what I must do for someone else. So that's what they meant by a disinterested benevolence. How many of you know that many times we're controlled by if it benefits us? But when revivalism hit and changed the culture, this is transformational revival. This is what we're looking for. I want a revival that floods out of the church. Now, praise God, I want it in the church. <laughs> I like when a fire's in the fireplace. But I want that fire to go out. And change this culture because those people need Jesus. The lost need Jesus. And so how do we do this? And it's called the tipping point. You see, there's a tipping point between where the people are crying out for God. If you will, I will. So there's got to be a tipping point from when we're hungry, we're crying out, we're begging for God, we're fasting, we're repenting, we're checking our hearts for sin. And when God pours, there's a tipping point here. There's something that shifts and changes. It's the moment of critical mass. It's the moment of threshold. It's the boiling point when everything changes. How many of you remember the roller coaster ride up? Click, 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 click. Your hearts go. I don't know how long we've been going up on this roller coaster. For this church, 28 years, click, 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 click. How many of you, wouldn't it be great if we're two clicks away? Come on, how many of you remember that? When you hit that top and all of a sudden it goes down. And what happens when you start to move? And your hands go up. You get Pentecostal. I don't care if you're a Baptist, if you're Catholic, if you're not even saved. You get Pentecostal. Ah! 
Because there's a tipping point. And when God moves, you lose it. And now you are a victim of the power of gravity and force. Come on, how many of you want that? I want a tipping point. I want a tipping point. Ideas, products, messages, behaviors, they all spread like viruses. And so viruses become epidemics. And revivals are very much like viruses or epidemics. Because there are three essential things for a spiritual revival. Number one, the, it, it's contagious. It affects other ones, other people. It begins to bubble up and people begin to make notice of it. And then they spread the news. This is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. You had 120 in an upper room, scared and afraid. A tipping point came when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And then it, they busted, the 120 busted out into the largest population of the year in that city. And as they busted out, it was contagious. They began to spread it, and it infected. A virus will infect the next person. So if you've got the virus and you begin to spread it, it begins to infect the city. On that day, 3,000 were saved. Amen? That's an infection. And what happens if 120 then overnight turns into a group of 3,120 now you've got an epidemic in that city and it causes a shift dynamically and we read over this line all many times but in the book of acts it says and many of the priests and levites turned to jesus christ now you've got the jewish priesthood coming to jesus now we've got a shift in an epidemic that started with 120 and a day next, 3,120. And after that, the priesthood, and it's moving into Jerusalem. And God, you know what he tells them? Go. And guess what they did? They stayed. God wants an epidemic. He wants it to spread. He wants it to go out. But hey, it's great when we got all of us agreeing. So you know what God did? He brought persecution to that city so that they all had to do what? Go. And it spreads. Now, revival is very much like this. There's the revival epidemic. So the first point is we need transmitters. Those who are contagious, those who have the virus of revival. Do I got anybody here tonight that has a hunger for revival, has a hunger for the move of God's Spirit? All right, you're contagious. You're a transmitter. Praise God. The second is the contagion. What is this disease? What is this thing? It's not a sickness. It's not death. It's quite the opposite. It is life. It is life. The contagion is the Holy Spirit. Once you get filled with the Spirit, you are contagious. You have to speak. And what is the environment you're speaking in? Who are you going to affect and infect? It's your city, your society, and your culture. Let me help you understand it in this visual. The transmitter is that first light. It only has to be one. It only has to be one. If we get one person on fire, excited about the Lord. Now the Moravians, you remember we studied them last week, right? 
The Moravians were on fire for God, and when they would go in a missions group, and the two of them would go into a foreign land, they were taught to look for the first fruits. When they would go in, they didn't try to save a whole tribe. They didn't try to save a whole country. They went for the first fruit of the concept of, we need a transmitter. We're foreigners. But if we bring this gospel in to one person out of this city or out of this tribe that is called by God that would come into this, now we've got someone who we can infect with the power and life of the Spirit of God, and they will then transmit. Now, what is the contagion? The flame. What is the flame? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And so we pray. And we pray for God's Spirit to ignite in people's lives. And some one man, two people, one woman, three children, I don't care what the combination is, someone full of the Holy Spirit moving out into an area can bring an epidemic and change the environment they're in. Do you believe it? Yes. Yes. That's our heritage. We've seen it and we know it. Now, let's take a look at transmitters. That's you. What are the qualities of a transmitter? All right? They're a believer, number one. They got to be a believer. It's not just the church. We're not saying churches are transmitters, churches are buildings. The church is people. Because there's a building that people gather in, doesn't mean that you've got true believers there. This is everybody that's sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so, You have to, first of all, be saved. Once you're saved, you become a visionary. You become someone that God can use. So don't limit God in His vision through you. Now, so we've got to believe for what we're looking for. I, I, again, am not satisfied with my Christian walk. I am not satisfied with what I have done for Jesus. I am looking for the next thing He wants me to do. I've got visions and dreams of what I'd like to see. Anybody else here? Come on. Don't let, now the first thing the devil wants to do is get you to abort those dreams. So what he's going to make sure he does is either catch you in a sin, he's either going to convict you, make you fall, or he's going to get someone else around you to tell you what a loser you are and to give up on your dreams. He's going to get someone to hurt you and disappoint you so that you walk away from the vision and dream you have in Jesus. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Go for it. You must be a visionary. Number two, you must be a catalyst. What a catalyst is? How many of you ever heard of a catapult? What's a catapult do? Yeah, foink. (laughs) That's catapult sound effects. Foink. All right? You have to be a catalyst. You've got to put it out there. You've got to stir something up. How many of you know that the Holy Spirit is always a catalyst to healing, to deliverance? It's what He does. He can't wait. He, he, he just can't. Somebody ask me to do something. That's what the Holy Spirit's always saying. Come on. Come on. Ask me. Ask me to do something. Come on. He stirs you up. Look at that lady. Look at that lady. She needs help. Come on. Come on. Let's do this. I don't know what to say. I'm scared. Come on. Come on. Let me out. Let me out. Let's go. Say something. Um, I don't know what to say. Come on. Say something. I just want to be there. Get me involved in this thing. So you got to be a catalyst. 
Many times he'll put you in situations where you have to become so dependent on him, you won't get in the way. Does that make sense? So put yourself in situations that you can't get out of. Put yourself in situations you cannot get out of that aren't sinful. And watch what Holy Spirit will do. That's C. He's unconventional. Most of my favorite experiences in the Lord happened completely unconventionally. They weren't planned and purposed. They happened completely accidental. And He pushed you into them. And you're going like, no, I don't want to. And when you're there, they come out of the blue. And after this thing is done, you're going like, what just happened? It's awesome, because he loves when you're amazed at what he does. He's awesome. So transmitters are excited about what they have and what they want to give. If you are bored with Jesus, you don't know my Savior. There are times we get bored with our lives easily because we get up, we work, we come home, we eat, we watch TV, we go to bed, we get up. We work, we come home, we eat, we watch TV, we go to bed. Right? Oh yeah, once a week we'll go to church. Throw that in there too. And we come in and we sit and others sing. And uh, Never mind. But we have got to be, and, and I, God has captured me with this, we have got to be entertained by God. What do I mean by that? We love entertainment. God gave us five senses to captivate us, to capture us. Ear gate, eye gate, right? Smell, taste, everything. He wants us to be entertained. We're drawn to entertainment. We're drawn to the things that are of the Spirit. How many of you are drawn to love? Anybody here want to be loved? Oh, okay, good. We're, we're drawn to joy. Anybody here love being happy and having joy and a, and a light heart? and pray? Yeah, we like joy. We like love. How many of you need peace in your life? Oh, Lord, rest, peace, things in order right? How many of you love mercy? You hate being taken advantage of. You just want mercy. You want goodness. Goodness, pure goodness. You're so sick and tired of evil and so forth. All of these are the attributes or the fruit of God's own nature, and we are all drawn to it constantly. So we try to get it by the food we eat in our meals. How many of you know that we eat like kings and queens here in America? Do you know that you get to pick and choose what you eat? That's outrageous to 80% of the population on this planet. They don't have the smorgasbord of what we have. And so we're attracted to our food. We're attracted to the music. We're attracted to TV. We're attracted to all the other entertainment. And we're bored with Jesus. Wow. That's on me. That's my fault. you got your own deals issues. But I recognize I need to be more. I was convicted last night of it. I need to be more... Uh, uh, captivated by Jesus and all that he can do. Amen? So, as a transmitter, we have to be visionary to believe. We have to be catalysts to share. And it's unconventional. It's wild and crazy. It should be a wild and crazy ride. Amen? But you know what we go for? Status quo. Don't rock the boat. Keep it safe. Thank you. So, 
what does a catalyst do? Take a look at this. This is status quo. This is average, where you've got the people who are kind of leaders and, and visionaries. They're out front, but the bulk of us are the general population keeping everything steady. This is good. I can control this. That's what that's about. Then, of course, you always have the people at the tail end who complain about everything. Even Jesus had it in the twelve. All right, let's go to Jerusalem and die. Thomas, right? Sure, he's risen from the dead. I won't believe it till I can touch him. Right? He's always at the end of the bell curve. But what happens to a catalyst? A catalyst is someone who believes, someone who pushes, someone who's an igniter. He's excited. He gives you his visions, dreams. He tells you, come on, we've got to go in this direction. And he begins to move things. And what happens is a few people catch that vision. They're the first responders. And they say, yeah, yeah, let's do this. And the first responders go from one to now 50. And then 50 people are praying where the one did. And as they're praying, all of a sudden, a critical mass or a what? Tipping point begins to take place and the general population begins to move. Right? And when that tipping point comes, revival is ready to break loose because it's not man-driven. It's going to be God-driven, but we're hungry for it to where we're pressing into it. Now, guess what you will always have, even in a revival? The tail, the naysayers. They're going to throw sticks and stones at it all. They're going to be the religious ones who say, this is not God. And you know what many churches do? They organize their vision, their plans, and their dreams to satisfy naysayers. And that's why most churches are stale and stuck because they're trying to keep unhappy people happy. Okay? I ain't going to do it. I ain't going to do it. We're moving forward. And I know there'll be naysayers. That's okay. Keeps us balanced. That's fine. I know where the end of the line is. <laughs> Amen. Now, what you need is a contagion. This thing is something that's so great. Right? How many of you are Apple phone users? Apple? Any Apple people here? Uh, Apple phones. How many Apple phones do we have? All right. How many Android phones? Android phones? All right. Which is better? See? L loyalist. <laughs> Flip phones. Now, why? Why are people into their particular thing? Because they believe in it. They believe in the product, right? They believe in the product. I got to ask if the church believes in the Holy Spirit. Because, I mean, if we've got something better than Apple, better than Android, better than IBM, better than anything else on this planet, we are not bragging on Him like we should be. In fact, most Spirit-filled people no longer uh, talk about being Spirit-filled. They go, yeah, yeah, I believe I'm sure. Is your tongues, your church Pentecostal? Yeah, you guys speak in tongues? Well, my, uh, you know, sorry. Are you speaking in tongues right now? <laughs> 
I had a guy, I told a guy, I was working at GM. I'm going to sidetrack. It's a funny story. I'm working at GM, and I was a clay modeler. We built cars out of clay, right? I was a, a modeler, and I'm working, scraping on clay. And a guy next to me, uh, he said, uh, so, so you're a believer? Yeah. He said, so, so, so you're like, uh, uh, you, what kind of church? Pentecostal. Oh, you're a Pentecostal one. Yeah, okay. And so I'm going along, and, and I'm working, and I'm, I'm just kind of singing a little song and this and that. And he goes, are you speaking in tongues right now? <laughs> no. I was just singing. But he wanted to know, what's that all about? What's going on? That's freaky. Right? We got to stop being ashamed of speaking in tongues, of prophesying, of laying hands on the sick. We got to stop. We got something that we know is the only solution to this city, to this culture, to this country, for this day, for this hour, for this sickness, for that disease, for that problem. I've got the solution. The solution is the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's the power and that's the contagion. And so we've got to believe in that and know that it is powerful. He infects us and He moves in us. This contagious. When you accept Christ and that Holy Spirit comes in you, now things are alive. And He's got you. Amen. Now, that's the Azusa Street mission. And... Uh, What's important for that in our heritage is that in 1907, there, were, uh, there was a man in Chicago named William Durham, and uh, he had heard of what was going on in Azusa Street and went to Azusa Street. Once he was there, he got baptized in the Holy Spirit and brought it back to Chicago, and he began preaching in Chicago. See, he became a transmitter. He got the contagion the Holy Spirit and power. He brought it back to Chicago and he met a bunch of Italian believers who were disenfranchised from their churches and he began to preach to them. That group of Italian believers got baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, and uh, that's when the IFCA, the uh, International Fellowship of Christian Assemblies, was birthed. That's our denomination. So we're directly descended from the Azusa Street Revival. And so this is the denomination we belong to. And so it's our heritage that revival, Holy Spirit revival, is something that belongs to us. Say it belongs to me. So not only are you on a continent that is based in revival, you're in a denomination that's based on revival. So what should be the fruit of our labors and efforts? Oh, you guys are good. You guys are good. Amen. And so, last of all, the next thing it should do is affect the environment or the culture or the city that we live in. And two things will happen. We have to believe that there is a time for our city where we are in desperation. Is our city in a place of desperation. Just Sunday, someone came up to me and said, Pastor, I had to take my mother to the hospital on Saturday. And I took her to the emergency room. And she said, Pastor, it looked like a war zone. We had to wait two hours. She said, on the right side, on the left side, the hallways were filled with people, addicts, people who are drug overdosed, drug abused. They said the hospitals are filled and cannot service enough help 
to the people who are drug addicted. Are we in a desperate enough situation yet? Do you think that it's time for us to attend to the needs of this city in prayer? And, and so we've got to know, the longer we take to prepare the way of the Lord, the greater price our community pays. How many people need to lose a child to suicide? How many more people need to lose an aunt, an uncle, or a friend to drug overdose? How many people need to see children who are going without food and hunger and without any love? How long is the church going to wait because it's satisfied with what it has and doesn't care about what others need? And so how long is it okay not to care? Joshua said this. He said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going to take possession of the land that the Lord has given you? We're no different than Israel. He said, this is your land. Take it. Go and make disciples of all people, all ethnic groups, all lands. And so we need to do that. And I love what Malcolm Muggeridge said. Malcolm Muggeridge said this, what is called Western civilization is in an advanced state of decomposition. Another dark ages is upon us, if indeed it's not already begun. With the media, especially television, governing our lives as it immutably does, it is easily imaginable that this might happen without the church or us even noticing it because we've become so accustomed to the gradual deterioration around us. He goes on to say, we have now educated ourselves into a state of complete imbecility. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not making a judgment about somebody particular, but as a whole in our culture, it's idiotic, the decisions that are being made and the choices of what is supposed to be right versus what is wrong. It's ludicrous, and it's imbecilic, and why are we tolerating it? The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality but at the same time, it's the most intellectually resisted fact. It's obvious that we're depraved. Look at the, what the entertainment of the movies is. Look at what people are addicted to. Look at what is sex trafficking, what is going on all around us and the addictions and everything else. All of that is completely idiotic. But intellectually, we reject the thought that we're idiotic. <laughs> Something ain't right. We are not, we're tolerating, one man put it this way, we are tolerating the overflowing toilet in our community. I was going to put a visual up, but I decided not to. I don't want you to not get that image out of your head. That would disturb you. But it's true. It's true. And if you don't know it, you're not being touched by the people that are walking right next to you. See, here's our problem. If you'll look at this, the spiritual awareness of our environment. We have got to get hungry for God and know that we're in desperate times. We have to be desperate and call for God. Number one, the first awareness is intellectual awareness. We're facing some problems, but hey, nothing's perfect. Just, you know, we're aware, but my situation's okay. Right? It's all right. We kill babies. That's all right. We, we, we uh, alter genders. That's all right. We do all this kind of crazy stuff. Number two, an instinctual awareness. You begin to feel, yeah, I don't think things are right. 
I'm hoping that you're at least at that point. Do any of you recognize that things aren't right? Then there's the intrusive awareness. Escalating problems begin to invade your life because your neighbors are now starting to break into your house. Your neighbors now are starting to do things that you don't like in their houses. People are walking in the streets and doing things. Things are happening in your job. It's now affecting you, and you're becoming more aware. Here, the last one is an immersive awareness, a sense that we are in immediate danger. And if we as a church are not spiritually discerning the spiritual danger that we are in, we're not going to be hungry enough to cry out for revival. We're going to stay at number two where we're just intellectually aware of it. But if you, you and I would tap into the heart of the Holy Spirit for what's going on around us, we will immerse ourselves in prayer. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you and we bless you. And we go forth in the power of your Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.